Welcome to Me, Myself, and Millie, a podcast about pop culture and hot gossip through the lens of your nosy neighbor. I'm your host, Millie Brooks, and this is episode 33. And today we are going to do a book review of Waiting for Daisy by Peggy Ornstein. And with me to discuss this amazing book is Stephanie Fresquez. Welcome, girl. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited about this. Yeah, Steph, it's it's so great to have you on the show. Um, and it's probably important to mention that Stephanie and I met at a Resolve meeting, which is an infertility support group. And since then, we've been texting each other ever since. <laughs> pretty much every day. <laughs> I know, pretty much every day, sometimes <laughs> multiple times. Um so if you are in an infertility space and you're looking for extra extra gal friends to run alongside with throughout this marathon, go to resolve.org and look for meetings in your area. Um, but before we dive into things, woof, Steph, I had no idea we were recording this episode on Mother's Day. I know. I didn't think about that until like yesterday. I'm like, wow, are we really doing this on Mother's Day? <laughs> I had, it was a massive oversight on my end. Um, well, it's not like we can go anywhere today or do anything anyways. So <laughs> I know exactly. It's like, it, 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 it's a weird, weird, weird day for people like us, isn't yes, it? Definitely. Um, I will say that my husband got me a card today oh, from, from the dog. Yes. Which is appropriate, Cleo. you know? Yeah. <laughs> I I am quite a mother to her. So exactly. Um, yeah. Um, what are you going to do with your day? Uh, I don't know, you know, probably just hang out. I mean, my husband did the same thing. John went, uh, you know, he, he didn't give me a card, but we always, you know, we acknowledge it. He knows that I'm a mom. These are all, we call them our kids. So uh, we'll just, you know, hang out and probably do some stuff in the yard and not, nice. nothing too crazy. Yeah. So and you celebrate. have three dogs, right? Three I dogs? I do. <laughs> I do. It's a little much. The the puppy, we have a, a six month old boxer, which was a new, uh, new addition as of January. But uh, yeah, it's, it's been a little, a little crazy, but fun. <laughs> oh my gosh. Boxers are just like young, dumb and full of cum. You know, <laughs> not only that, he's so he has got just so much energy. I'm like, I I have two Boston Terriers who are like, and they're older, so they're super lazy and chill. And I'm like, what did we just do? Like, what did we do? Why did we need a boxer puppy? <laughs> but I love him. I, I love him. I guess if anything, I hope that that's like practice for when we actually have a baby. This is like our the lead into right. <laughs> yes, yes. This is the um the preamble. Yes, exactly. To the to the motherhood that we will enjoy someday. Yes. Um, well, um, Steph, why don't we, I like to kind of tell the listeners a little bit about who you are and like your journey just so they can, you know, you can kind of qualify yourself and um, give people a little backstory about you. Yeah, sure. Uh, so 
Um, actually, Friday, it was interesting. Friday the 8th, May 8th, was John and I's uh, 13 years of dating, like 13 years of being together. Um, so we've been together. Congratulations. I know. It's pretty crazy. I'm surprised we haven't killed each other yet. (laughs) (laughs) Um, but yeah, so 13 years, uh, we've been, we'll be married for seven, uh, this August. Um, and we have been trying for a baby for six years now. Um, we started trying naturally, uh, we did that only for a short amount of time, only because my husband does have, uh, he had cancer when he was 17. So we kind of thought there may be a, an issue there um, because he had chemo and radiation. So pretty early on, you know, thankfully we did go ahead and, and look into, you know, to try to get a bunch of testing done and figure out what was going on. So we knew that initially that was a partial factor there. Um you know, in, in my mind, I kind of thought that was the factor. It just, you know, I was like, no, that's got to be it. But over the last uh, six years, we've done uh, two different IVF treatments. We've done multiple IUIs. And uh, it's, as it turns out, it's it's not just John. There, I have some, some stuff going on with me, too. Um, unfortunately, it's been, uh, you know, a long road to find all of this stuff out and we're continuing to go through it, but, you know, still hopeful that at some point we will get our baby and we're, we're still working on that. Yeah, that's great. That's great. And it's, um, six years is, uh, is a long time to be on this road, but you still, I mean, for me, you're such an inspiration because you are like, you still have gas in the tank, girl. You are like, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, it's so inspiring. Yeah. You know, it's it's not, you know, it's definitely not easy. And, you know, even in last year, 2019, we took an entire year off just to kind of get back to who we are. And, you know, we had an amazing year. I think every month last year we were on vacation. Like we went somewhere every month last year, which was amazing. We had such a good year, kind of cleared our minds and got us ready for 2020 to start once again. And, you know, hopefully this will be the, the last, you know, our, our last kind of hurrah at this and we'll end with a baby this year. So, or at least being pregnant. Um, but yeah, so yeah, six years is definitely a long time. Um, but I think that I know you'd mentioned it earlier, the resolve group and having just that support is so important. I can't believe that it, it just, I think for so long, I thought that if I joined an infertility support group, that just meant that like I was giving up and now, you know, it was going to be childless and and there's nothing wrong with, you know, choosing that too. Um, But in my mind, I just, I wasn't there yet and I'm still not there yet. And so for me, I just, you know, kept thinking there's no way, like, I don't need to join an infertility support group. And then finally, you know, it got to the point that I had some other friends telling me, you know, why don't you just do that? Like it's, you know, there's a lot of other people out there. It might be helpful. So you know, I went totally out of my comfort zone. I was like, fine, I'll do this. And I went and I ended up meeting you and our other friend, Aaron. And it actually was the best thing that could have ever happened to me. And honestly, you guys give me um, a lot of support and kind of give me that extra gas in the tank that I think I needed to keep going. So if anyone else out there is even going, you know, going through this or considering joining a fertility support group, absolutely do it because it's a hundred percent worth it. I'm so happy that, that I met you guys and I have you guys to help me get through this journey and I can be there for you guys as well. Yeah. I think it's like, um, it's, it's one of those things that's so mutually beneficial to everybody. You know, I mean, I, I found out about my doctor who is Dr. Amy, 
um, yes. through the support group, you know, right. and if I hadn't even joined the support group, I would have never heard, heard about her. Right. No, I agree. If now uh, I'm jumping on that bandwagon too. my doctor, who is now also Dr. Amy, <laughs> I only know about because of you guys. I was like, who, Dr. What? And then, you know, you do all the research and I'm like, okay, this is, this has got to be the one she's, she's the one. Yeah. Yeah. She's pretty special. Yes. Um, well, let's um, dive into the book. I have to say that when I first suggested this book to you, um, I had no idea what I was suggesting. <laughs> <laughs> I, I hadn't even read it yet. And um, it came from a, it was a suggestion from a friend. Um, and I was kind of going out on a limb by telling you that you should also read it. Um, but I thought it could be fun to kind of read something like this in tandem with another right. person. Um, like we could have our own infertility book club kind of thing. Yeah, exactly. And, yeah. But, um, well, but it I, all I was, ended. Yeah, go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say, I, I think it's so funny because I know when you had mentioned that, I was like, oh, like, no, I've never even heard of that book. What do you like? Sure. I, I mean, I love to read, so I was up for it anyways. Um, and I ended up downloading it on Kindle and reading it there. But it was so funny because then when you asked me to be on the podcast to talk about the book. Uh, I was sitting at my desk. I'm in the office and I look over to my right and I have like all my books up there and I saw this spine of a book uh, and it said waiting for Daisy. And I'm like, what? Like I bought that. I had this book already. I just bought it online. So the, the funny thing is, is at, I mean, it's funny, but not uh, after one of my IVF losses, um, one of my friends, my friend Gina actually bought me, she kind of gave me this whole care package and she had included this waiting for Daisy book. And, you know, at the time when you go through a loss and everything's so fresh, I kind of like put all that stuff away and I was like, thanks Gina, but you know, like I'll read it, I'll get to it later. Okay. Well, fast forward, like, I don't know, however many years later, I'm like, oh, so if that was the book and I'm kind of disappointed that I didn't read it when she gave it to me. Cause I think I really needed it. <laughs> wow. Yeah. That's so, I don't know. That is so, it, it's so ironic that yeah. you already had this in your possession. And then I mentioned it to you and all of a sudden yeah. it reemerges from, from, from a past recommendation. It's right. great. <laughs> it's great. Well, I mean, Steph, in your own words, you know, now that we've both read the full book, um, how would you describe the book to a friend who is going through infertility? Um, so I think... I would say just because I guess I like, I don't want to come off sounding so like cynical, but I feel like, um, you know, I, when you first gear up to do any sort of a fertility treatment or, and especially IVF, when you get to that point, I think so many people, including myself have that idea that like, okay, like IVF, like, uh, this is going to be the solution, like boom, boom, do some shots and get my baby and it's done. Um, you know, and I, I thought the same thing. And I, I think that, reading this book just really opens your eyes to, you know, and, and, you know, that does happen. There are the people that it happens for, and that's amazing. Um, but I really think just reading this book is just so good to just kind of let you know all the twists and turns that could, you know, this isn't all of them, but this is definitely a good example of what can happen and what's really out there and how to kind of prepare yourself for everything. So, I mean, it's, if you're going through this or, or gearing up to go through it, I, I, you know, I think it's a, a must read for sure. I, I couldn't agree more. I think that the, um, 
you know, the different directions that her journey takes her to is so interesting and what she kind of uncovers along the way and just this idea that like when you are trying to conceive and you are struggling with infertility, like the goalpost shifts a lot. Like you're kind of like, okay, well, I don't want to do that, but I'll do this right now. And then time goes by and then you're more willing to do things that you swore you never would do. <laughs> exactly. You know? Yep. So, well, let's um let's go through the first 100 pages, shall we? And um the cool thing that again, I had no idea about when I was recommending this is that she's from Berkeley. And yeah. There are so many Bay Area references. Yeah, I had no idea either. And we start reading it and I'm like, wait, what? Like, I, you know, yeah, there's San Francisco and she's talking about Berkeley. And, and yeah, it's just, it, it's, it was really funny. <laughs> there yeah. was something at one point she talks about her, I think, I don't know if they were, yeah, it was her husband um, when they move into his, his house or his apartment in the Berkeley Hills and talking about how he's got like shims underneath all the furniture to keep things even for only reasons people in California in Northern California would know. Like, totally. <laughs> I thought that was totally. so funny. And the other thing is, um, well, there was two references in the book. One in like the first hundred pages, she talked about like a Polish doctor in Berkeley Mm -hmm. who I have been to. I know (laughs) who that is. And like, God bless Peggy Ornstein because I know she changed the name in the book because this was the doctor that was just very like matter of fact, not, you know, bad bedside manner. Right. Um, And she... She went to him and the, and he was actually, this book is about 10 years old and he was actually practicing back then. So it just like it all, the description of his office, the description of him, I know it's this factor that <laughs> <Yes>. I've seen. <laughs> That's funny. Yeah. Um, but one of the first things that kind of struck me is actually on page 51 where she talks about how... Um, about God and religion, you Mm -hmm. know, um, Peggy is sort of a, I mean, Jewish, Jewish, you know, in terms of maternal history, but not really a practicing Jew. Is that how you would kind of describe it? Yeah, exactly. Yep. And, um, she says like in the top of page 51, like how consoling to feel that your miscarriage or your infertility or your 15 children were God's will. I could never do it, but sometimes I dearly wished I could. And that's something that like you hear a lot about when you're infertile is like, what is God's will? Right. You know, and, and, and it's so, it's like, I don't think the God that I believe in is not in the business of suffering. Right. And so like, I just, I can't, I understand how that would be an intellectual leap to try to say that this is God's will for me. Right. No, I, yeah, I don't. I actually, I literally just had someone say that to me yesterday, like, Oh, you know, it's God willing. And I'm like, okay, but like you, I can't believe, yes. A, I don't think that he would want me to be suffering, but also like, 
I don't like that either because what if it's not his will? Like I, I can't, you know, I can't right. just trust that right now. Like I, I, it sounds good in theory, but realistically, yeah. you know, I'm here and I'm working on this now. Yeah. And I will say that like, I don't know if I've ever even used that phrase before in my life, but I will never use that phrase again. Right. No, <laughs> you know? absolutely not. It's just like out of my vocabulary now. 100%. Um, anything that stuck out to you? Uh, yeah. So th- there was a lot. Um, <laughs> just, I guess just to start going back to the beginning of the book, I, you know, it's interesting too, how she talks about how in the beginning, or, you know, not in the beginning, but when she's in her twenties, you know, how she would, you know, two weeks after, you know, a night where she would have unprotected sex, then, you know, she would be, you know, praying that she wasn't pregnant, like hoping that wasn't the case. And now, you know, for her 20 years later, she's, she says in the book, she says, two decades later, I've the fall, I, I turned 40. It occurred to me that I should have put a time limit on that request you know, that she's praying to God that she's not pregnant. And I'm like, oh, I relate to that so much. I did that so many times. Right. So many times. Yep. I just, I also loved how she brought up her, um, her ex in the first portion of the book who has 15 children. Yes. And, um, I think his name is Larry. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, I bookmarked a area where she went to go visit Larry and his 15 kids. (laughs) And, um, one of the daughters that he has resembled her Mm -hmm. a little bit. And it, um, this is what she says with her dark eyes and blonde Shirley Temple curls, She resembled the daughter I imagined Larry and I would have if we had married. He had noticed, too. If I couldn't prove that Beth was her mother, he cracked, I'd be suspicious. Yeah. Which is so, I don't know, man. Like, sometimes throughout this journey, you just, like, start, like, you just start thinking about all your partners, you know, that you've had. And, um... Yeah, you just it it can kind of be an escape and in a fantasy thing. It's just it's weird to think about those things. Yeah, it definitely is and that would be really weird to be in that situation because she was still so close with her ex too, you know, or or good friends with him and his wife and family. So to go back and see that and have that, yeah, it's yeah, that that crazy. Was, yeah, that was crazy. It's crazy. Um let me see. I'm just like going through my notes here. Um, oh, I always, oh, another thing is I really felt like her husband, um, Stephen, was, man, he would always come in with some great lines throughout yes. the book, you know? And one of his great lines is actually on page 57. Um and he said, um, uh, "What? What? When I, she, she just like told Stephen some news. Um, I think that she, maybe after her first miscarriage. Mm-hmm. Um, and she says, when I told Stephen the news, he wrapped his arms around me. He wasn't worried. He said, even if we have to wait for a year to try again." That's 12 extra months that we can enjoy being together, that we can do fun things as a couple. 
I buried my face in his neck and cried, newly grateful after my visit to the Browns for his, for his touch. I felt like the luck, luckiest unlucky woman in the world. Yep. So beautiful. It really is. Yeah. I feel, yeah, I, I totally felt that too. Yeah, it really was. That was so sweet. He's such a sweet guy. I kind of want to meet him and like give him a high five. Right. You know? Well, I also like too. he had another good one in the beginning of the book when she was talking about, you know, when they first got married, she wasn't even sure that she wanted to have kids, you know, she, she wasn't really sure. And so they start to talk about, you know, do, are we going to have kids? Or are we not? And I like the way he says, cause I feel this, this is kind of my thought too. He says, I guess I think of life as kind of like an amusement, an amusement park. If you're going to go, you should ride every ride at least once. And having kids is like the big, scary roller coaster. You can have a good time without riding it, but you would have missed a significant part of the experience. I love that. I I remember that one, too. Yeah, I loved that. Me, too. I loved, loved, loved that. Because I I loved amusement parks as a kid, and I always wanted to go on the scariest one. Right. What's (laughs) the point of, like, you know, saying you went to Cedar Point if you didn't try, you know, the mantis or whatever it was. I don't know. Um, there was also, you know, I really like how she, I think it's also probably good for the listeners to know that Peggy comes from a feminist background too. And so that also kind of plays a role in some of the, some of the chapters about her decisions and everything. Um, and on page 58, she said, she says this, um, after, after doing, I think she's about to go into another round of IVF. She says, you've become hope's bitch, willing to destroy your career and marriage, your self-respect for another taste of its seductive high. <laughs> I literally I like, have that highlighted right here. The same thing. Yes. No way. Uh, yeah. Well, I like the beginning part of that too, though. I like, so that this chapter is called hooked. Um, and I like how at the beginning of it, she talks about, uh, what she say, she said, so Clomid becomes, so Clomid is, uh, a pill that they give you cause it, it works by basically, uh, tricking your brain into thinking it's not making enough estrogen and kind of helps pump up your, your follicles to give you, uh, more eggs when you're going through fertility treatment. But so she says, Clomid becomes infertility's version of reefer madness. First, you smoke a little green, a little grass. Then you're selling your body on the street corner for crack. So first, <laughs> you, first you pop a little Clomid. Suddenly, you're taking out a second mortgage for another round of IVF. And then that's when she goes into, you become hope's bitch, willing to destroy your career, your marriage, your self-respect for another taste of its seductive high. I'm like, if that, so is, good. if that is not me right now, I, I, I don't know. Oh, I know. <laughs> I know. I, I f- it's a drug. It's it becoming this, a drug. It really um, is. I loved that part of it. Um, I also, um, another theme that she kind of brings up again in the book is like, she really just wants to win at pregnancy, you know? Right. And on 67, she has a great quote. She says, my hesitations about motherhood hadn't disappeared, but they were steamrolled by my drive to succeed at pregnancy. Yep. You know, and sometimes I kind of have to like check myself a little bit. Like, am I just like becoming obsessed with this because I want to win at it? Or am I 
becoming obsessed about this because I want to have a baby. Right. You know what I mean? And I think they're both, I think both exist. I was just going to say, I feel like it's both. I I want both. I I want this because I want to beat stupid infertility. And also because I really want to be a mother, but like, I, I just refuse. I'm like, yes, I'm six years into this and I am not going to let, like, I am still fighting. I am going to win this. (laughs) A hundred percent. Yeah. And we're, you know, like you, me and Aaron, we're all very driven, you know, set a goal, set a plan, achieve the goal, you know, kind of people. Yep. So, um, well, to um, add, just to add to that too, I feel like, so that when one part of the book, she talks about how she does talk to her other friends who have also gone through infertility or who have, uh, you know, chosen to adopt and in whatever ways that they've become mothers. Um, and so she says that, you know, they, when she talks to them, they do remind her that one way or another, this would end. Uh, and that the way she feels right now is not the way she'll feel for the rest of her life. And so I like that too. You know, she says her friend friend tells her the pain does go away. And this was another friend who I think ended up adopting, um, you know, so it's just hope. Yeah. That's, you know, that's one of the things about the resolve group that I think I've mentioned to you that like sometimes hope gets a little lost in all of the grief and despair that people are going through. And Real talking to people who have been on the other side of this is like, oh, so good. Yes. I, yeah. Yeah. Because it, you need that. You need those success stories. Sometimes hearing about just like the, you know, every failure just really brings you down. You know, I know they exist and, you know, we feel it too when we have our failures, but you have to kind of look for the the hope out there and hold on to that to get you through to the next step. Totally. Totally. I um I also highlighted a part where she talks about the waiting room at infertility clinics. Yes, which are was such an accurate dis- description. Um, she says, "I looked around unhappily. Blah 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 blah. The couches were worn, the cushions sagging. Um, the place was packed mostly with women like me. None of them smiled." No one acknowledged anyone else's presence. Everyone came in and took a seat as if we were the only person in the room, then stared blank-eyed at her lap or at a back issue of Town and Country. I checked them out from the corner of my eye. It's just... It's so true, though. I know. There was one time, like, after one of my resolve meetings, I went to... um, my old clinic and was sitting in the waiting room. And I kind of was like, should I give everybody my number? Like we could, we could have a support meeting right now in this waiting room, you know, but everybody's like not there to make friends. No. Well, you know, it's just weird too, because it's like everybody, you, you don't know where everybody is at in their journey or why they're there or what's, you know, what's happening. So it's just this like awkward thing. You walk in and you're like, well, I don't, and you don't want to stare for too long. She also talks about too, I, I don't, I didn't highlight it, but I know in the book, she talks about how like, there is that, you know, I admit it, I've done it too, where you walk into the room and you do see other women and you kind of like size them up. Like, you know, like, Oh, like, I wonder what they're here for. Like, Oh, she's older or she looks really young. Like, why would she be here? You know, you have all these thoughts and you know, it is, it's just such a strange thing when you go into that, into the waiting room. 
I mean, and it's even worse. I had, I hate to say this because I'm all for like empowering men throughout this situation and this journey. But when men are in the waiting room, you just know they're there yes. to jizz in a cup. <laughs> oh my God. You know? It's so true. And they, they just like walk around like a dog with a tail between their legs. You know, they're yes. just like, ooh, I'm about to go do this. And we all know it. <laughs> Um, okay, you know? wait, I have to share just a funny story really quick. So it just reminds yeah. me because poor John, he's been such a good sport through all of this. You know, I've literally made him do like every possible thing you, you, you can have to do through this. And, you know, he does it because ultimately he wants the same thing, but he does it reluctantly. <laughs> um, but so one of the times he had to go, he would have to go to these appointments to go deliver his specimen. And, uh, when he would go after work. And so he would have to change out of, you know, whatever he was wearing and, you know, his work clothes or whatever. And, um, he would put on like jeans and a t-shirt or whatever to go to this thing. So he starts work really early in the morning. So he'll usually pack a bag and uh, whatever, but it's, I mean, he starts, he leaves the house at like 4 AM and gets dressed and everything in the dark because God forbid he wakes me up. So, <laughs> um, one one day he had his appointment and he gets there and he does this thing or whatever he comes home and I'm like what are you wearing he was like I don't know it was early I gr- this is the only you know I grabbed this shirt or it was the only shirt that I had or that I saw and I didn't realize what it was but so when you know I don't know a year or so before this when we had went to Disneyland I made him wear one of those cheesy shirts that says like uh I, she's my mini or what is it it's you know it says he's my Mickey and or mine said, I'll be your mini. And he says, I'll be your Mickey is what it said. And they had like <laughs> fingers pointing at each other, but like they were obviously two separate shirts, but I was like, what a dork. Like, I don't know why I just thought it was so funny. The image of him going in there, like feeling awkward, having to go get a cup, wearing this t-shirt with a big old Mickey mouse on it that says, I'll be your Mickey. And I was like, what a creep. Like, That's <laughs> funny. I just love the idea of that or the thought of that happening. <laughs> That's adorable. I know. Poor guy. That's adorable. Um, John's a good sport about <laughs> everything. Um, another part of the first hundred pages that I kind of bookmarked here was the um, description of um, the donor egg on page 85. Mm-hmm. Like they, her her next doctor named Dan um, starts suggesting using donor eggs. Um, and here's what she says. Um, what was with these guys? They dangled IVF in front of us and after it failed and we had shelled out the cash said I was a bad candidate for it. Mm -hmm. What's more after implying that a genetic link to our baby was so important that it was worth going to physical and financial extremes to attain, they whipped around and implied that the link, at least my link was no big deal. The key to motherhood was carrying the child, not conceiving it. I wondered whether if my problem had been a wonky uterus, he'd been insinuating that the vessel didn't matter. Anyone could grow a baby. It was the egg that made the mom. It was as if donor eggs were part of the part of a continuum. Continuum? What is that? I've never (laughs) seen that word before. Hmm, Sorry, guys. Not a great reader. But um, another cure. Yeah. Another cure for infertility rather than a huge psychological leap, Mm -hmm. which I thought was like really interesting. 
Well, it's, she talks about that too with her, with the prior doctor, uh, how it's funny that yes, that that doctor is not funny, but it's, you know, after that, that failure too, that they say donor eggs. And it's interesting because, you know, this is Dr. Amy will now be my third, uh, no, my fourth clinic now. Um, my fourth doctor. And it's just funny how every time, yes, you go in there and they dangle hope at you. And then when it fails, all of a sudden, you know, she says her relationship with the doctors, you know, they, all of a sudden they turn clinical, they turn, you know, clinical and curt and they don't really want to have these convert, you know, they, it's like all of a sudden she says, you know, because her husband was a filmmaker. So she says he, it says it was the difference between the way people talk to you when you've just had a hit movie and when you've made a bomb, <laughs> we, we apparently develop the stink of failure. And when that happens, that is the way it is. It's like, you don't hear back from the doctors. They don't call you. They no longer care anymore because you've paid. It was a failure and they're kind of over it. Yeah. Yeah. A hundred percent. And and then they dangle. Oh, okay. Well, after, instead of telling you from the beginning, now they say, Oh, well, now why don't you try donor eggs? Like, <laughs> Yeah. It's like the wild west. It's like, Oh, you know, somebody opens their coat jacket and like shows you all these fancy, you know, rich gold watches and everything, right? you know, and then you buy one and it doesn't work. And they're like, well, you didn't buy the best one. Right. (laughs) You know, it's like, Oh my God. I, um, I guess we're moving on into the, um, other, I'm 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 on page 105 now. Okay. But I um I highlighted another one of Steven's lines, which is this is where she's gotten really like obsessed with trying to get pregnant. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of all she thinks about, all she wants to talk about. She's just sort of, you know, she's you know, life doesn't have a lot of color right now for her. And Stephen says, I know you want me to be sympathetic, but I'm not, Stephen shot back. I've run out of sympathy. I'm tired of your self-absorption. I'm tired of how you make this all about you. I'm tired of how in love you are with your own misery. You are not the only one in pain here. Which I think was like, oh, gosh, it just really cut to the bone, you know, because like, it's so true that like I love not love but I'm fully aware of how much pain I'm in when I'm like I'm I'm fully aware of my suffering right. let's just say that you know and it's hard to um the hardest part is like having a partner who watches the suffering and know they can't really do anything about it exactly yeah. So I've, yeah, I agree. I, I feel like that I've definitely felt that and been in that position. I can't tell you how many times John has said, this is just so hard because the one thing that you want the most is the one thing that I can't give you. And, you know, like it, you know, and, and I know that he's acknowledging my suffering, but I know that that is hurting him as, you know, it hurts him deeply as well. Totally. Totally. Anything else that stuck out to you, Steph? Um, yeah, just to tag on to that too, you know, he does, you know, he, Stephen, her husband says, yes, but you know, we have to, when she's going through the suffering, she says, you have, he tells her, you have to care about something else besides getting pregnant. We have to live a life as well. 
you know, and I, I relate to that as well, because that's also something that John has had to remind me of when, you know, you're going through this and it feels like that's all that matters, you know, and he's like, we have to be able to move forward and live life, you know, regardless of what's going to happen. And, you know, totally. It's so true. Cause I've put like so much on hold, you know, at certain parts of my journey. Oh yeah. Thinking that like, oh, well, this, could this be harmful to a potential fetus, you know, like all that stuff. Right. Like I've put off like painting projects because I'm worried that like the toxic chemicals, you know, might ruin my chances. And that's just crazy. Yeah. You know what I mean? But you think about how many other women like are, have no idea, you know, that they're even pregnant or this happened and they're doing all sorts of things that are technically could be potentially harmful to the baby. But like, they have, they end up having, you know, totally fine, healthy babies. And like, it's just totally, yeah, but no, it's true. I think that, you know, like I said, last year, we took a, a year to really just go on all these trips and do things that we hadn't, you know, that we've been putting off for all these so many years before that, um, because that was the case, you know, it'd be like, oh, well, we can't go out of the country. Cause what if there's Zika there? Or like, you can't do this, you can't do that. And last year we were like, you know what, let's just go knock it out. We're doing all of it. Yeah. Yeah. Oh God, the Zika thing. It's so funny to even like think about Zika now that we're actually in a, you know, a more threatening pandemic. Right. You know? Right. Um, <laughs> like, do I really care that much? No, I mean, yes, of course you care about Zika, but I'm like, now there's so yeah. much other stuff going on. Who knows? Totally. I, um, I think now like we're kind of moving into the portion of the book where she goes to Japan for a yes. while. Which is really, really interesting mm-hmm. um, because I actually visited Japan two years ago. Japan was the first, our month in Japan was the first month of Rowan and I actually trying to conceive. Oh, okay. Um, so it just, there was like a lot of, I just felt very connected to her. Yeah, that is weird. Like not knowing th- about that, about this book and how much time she actually spends there, that that was your connection to it. Yeah. Totally. Totally. And I, um, I thought I really enjoyed her comparison to like culturally, um, you know, Japan's, um, Japan's abortion rates are really, really high. Right. You know, um, because the pill was really hard to get for a while. Um, And just, you know, hearing about her um, investigating the adoption process in Japan, too, was really interesting. Um, And talking to survivors of... um, you know, the atomic bomb in Hiroshima. Right. That was really, that was really powerful stuff. Well, you know, you know? The, the other thing that I like too, that she did talk about it kind of, um, I don't know, it kind of made me feel, I don't know, or gave me peace or something too, for the losses that I've had when she talks about that. Um, I don't know. It's like a day in Japan, um, where they give offerings to Jaizo, which is like some Buddhist, uh, I guess it's like some sort of enlightened being, Um, who watches over miscarried and aborted fetuses as well as dead children. Um, Because like you said, the abortion rate is so high there. So they actually have a day that they dedicate to, to, to that. And so it was, I I kind of, I don't know, it gave me, like I said, just some sort of peace. I like the part where she actually gets to go to find, uh, 
the statue and go deliver. They, they give like toys and stuff like that for the children. They leave them all around the statues for their lost children. And I, I really like that she went to do that. I know it made me want to do some sort of ritual like that, you know, like, and she talks about the ritual of purchasing the toy and which toy she would buy. Right. Bought a couple of different toys um, and then left them at the shrine. Right. Um, and I think this was, um, I don't think this is where she went to, to, to make that offering, but this is when she, I, I kind of like highlighted the part when she went to the peace park, the peace park, okay, which was a, te- she says was a testament to the importance of remembering. Maybe that was the other reason I had returned the- here. I respected the need to make meaning out of life's randomness, out of its misfortunes, big and small. As a writer, as a human being, I devoted my life to the power of story. I believed for them, for me, that part of healing was in the telling. My own dilemma now was this. How could I memorialize someone who never really existed? Should I try to forget these babies, these non-babies that I'd lost? Could I, even if I wanted to? It was just like so powerful. Right. Yep. I, yeah, I love that. I actually, I also highlighted that part of it too. I thought that was just so, yeah, it's really touching. I, I, I really like that part of it. She also, just to, to add on to that too, when she does go to, when she actually does go to do the offerings and then she talks about how, um, here, I'll, I'll read this part that I highlighted here, but it's just interesting because in Japan, they do have the day to, to memorialize and to honor all of those lost babies. And, um, she says, so here, she says, even in this era of compulsive confession, women don't speak openly of their losses. It was only now that I'd become one of them that I had begun to hear the stories spoken in confidence, almost whispered. There were so many, you know, women I had known for years, sometimes my whole life who had this happen sometimes over and over again, but felt they couldn't or shouldn't mention it, Mm. you know, and that's so so good. Yep. So good. She really eloquently like touches on the feelings that are so hard to explain. Right. You know, like how, yeah. How do you like, how do you memorialize something like that? It's so, that's so tender, you know? Exactly. Um, That and the fact that it's just not talked about. Like, I love that you're doing this whole season on infertility because, you know, and in fact, you were the one who posted something and started sharing it on Instagram that really made me open up and say, I'm going to share mine, you know, what I've been going through too, because it's, why should we be ashamed and hide it and hold this alone? You know, it's, it's life, it's happening. And, and it was interesting too, because I'm sure you had the same response of so many people that I know and love and have been friends with or family that were, you know, still messaging me privately, but saying, you know, I went through this too. It's, it's just, it's happening to so many people out there. I just wish that it would be talked about more so we wouldn't have to go through it alone. It really does feel like the, like our society is not set up for these types of conversations. Right. You know, like we don't know how to be um, supportive towards somebody um, going through this. And granted, like I say that, and when I made that post on Instagram, I got so much support from people, which is, 
I didn't know I needed that. Mm-hmm. You know, like my friend sent me a care package, you know, and and like even today on Mother's Day, like two of my friends sent me text messages, you know, like I'm sure today's really hard for you on a few different levels and I'm just thinking about you and I love you. Exactly. And like those it's just so powerful, yep. you know? And like you said, it's things that you didn't even really know you, you needed, you know? And it's nice to get that and, and have those people to, to know that you have the support and the people that love you that are thinking of you. It's, it's really important, especially when you're going through this. Totally. This kind of dovetails into my next quote that I want to read, where she talks about um, Americans suppressing um, the discussion of miscarriage. Mm-hmm. So she says, maybe Americans suppress discussion of miscarriage because we don't like unhappy endings. We recoil from death. Better to push on, not to dwell. Personally, I was hypersensitive about being blamed for my loss, judged as waiting too long with the nasty implication that I got when, what I des- that I got what I deserved. After all, I felt that way toward myself. But there was some that, but there was something else that held me back, my own pro-choice politics. I may have been able to distinguish psychological personhood from the biological or legal, yet that thread connecting me and my embryo had left startlingly real and at direct odds with everything I believed about when life begins. Mm-hmm. Which totally, oh my <laughs> gosh like mind blown. Thank you. You know, thank you for like putting words to all the feelings that I've ever had. Yes. About this dilemma. A hundred percent. She did. I mean, this book is just, I'm, I can't even believe I, I had it and didn't read it this whole time. I feel like it's there's on so many levels. There's so many things that just like resonated to my core, you know, that she's saying in here. And the way, like you said, she wrote it just so perfectly. Her words are so eloquent. Like she, she did such a good job. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think, um, one other part that I had was, um, uh, oh gosh, was on, um, one thirty nine. She says what I'd experienced had not been a full life, nor was it a full death. But it was a real loss. Yep. Maybe my Mizuko would come back to me more fully another time, or maybe it would find someone else. Surprisingly, even that thought was solace. I wasn't exactly at peace as I left the temple. Grief is not so simply dispensed with, but I felt a little easier. I had done something to commemorate this event. I'd said goodbye. I was grateful to have had that chance. Which yeah. makes me feel like we need a temple. I agree. I think that's so beautiful. Yeah. What do you remember what Mizuko means in Japanese? No. Was I Mizuko like the idea of like hope being lost, or was that the idea of something? I can't remember. Oh, wait, hold on. Wait. Mizuko uh, Kuyo. I don't know. Actually, I don't remember. I don't remember. Um, anyways, it was just, oh, wait, hold on. It says the Japanese tend to be more tolerant of moral ambiguity, amb- ah, ambiguity, accepting both the inevit- inevitably, 
wow, I can't read right now, <laughs> inevitability of abortion and the idea that Mizuko is a form of life. Mm. So the right. Mizuko, oh, yeah, it says the Mizuko Kuyo is the ritual of apology and remembrance. Oh, that's right. Right. And in Japanese, it is Mizuko, which is usually translated as water baby. Got it. Wow. That makes sense. Okay. Makes sense. Um, but yeah, I totally agree. It would be amazing if we had something like that to to just be able to find that peace and say your goodbye and, ha- you know what I mean? And just commemorate the fact that there was a life lost. Totally. Totally. I, um, anything that we've skipped over that you've had marked? Um, yeah. So one thing that I'm like, this has just been all too real for me lately. Um, but where she's talking about, this is after, what was this one? This was after another miscarriage that she had had. Um, and she had started doing acupuncture at this point and that's how she ended up, uh, she ended up getting pregnant and she had a miscarriage, but so, you know, she's, her husband's kind of over it at this point, um, or just wanting to take a break. And he says, I can't do this anymore. Like you're destroying our marriage. Um, and he says, you pretend to talk about normal things, but I can tell you're thinking about fertility the whole time. And I'm like, oh, I feel that so much because oftentimes I'm having, you know, I'm trying to like do other things. And then I like sneak in a question or something that has to do with fertility. And John's like, I don't want to talk about this right now. And I'm like, I know, but it's on my mind all the time. I know. I know. It's so hard to not want to like just release a little bit of pressure on your brain about what you're kind of on the hamster wheel about. Well, and she goes even further. I mean, she says in another part that I highlighted on here where I was like, this is just really, really intense. Um, She just says that, uh, he says, you know, you pretend to talk about normal things and um, you're thinking about fertility. And she, he says that, uh, you know, if someone else were to come along and say, you know, and pay some attention to him that he's like, I'm not saying it would happen, but I'm just letting you know that I want you to be aware, like, this is how I'm feeling. Um, and she says how she wishes she could say that his warning and pleading brought him to his senses to make, make her realize how sorely she had been neglecting him. But perversely in my very faith in his commitment to our relationship, it allowed her to abuse it. Um, she says I had convinced myself that they would survive the damage she was inflicting and it was reversible if necessary. Basically, she says she'd make it up to him later after she had a baby. But right now, she needed him to do what she wanted. Um, or she wa- she needed him to do what she-, she wanted him to want what she wanted. And if she couldn't have that, she needed him to do what she wanted. Like, <laughs> yes. Isn't that the truth? You know, I'm trying to, we're here trying to get John to take like, you know, the Chinese herbs from the acupuncturist and all this stuff. And I'm like, even if he may not want to, but regardless, I need you to do this. Like I, like I said, there's just so many things in here that I'm like, Oh, I feel that. I totally, I remember that part. And it was, he was like, I, I, this isn't a threat, but I will tell you that I will be very vulnerable to that temptation or something. And I think that was a turning point for her, you know, um, I also, I'm not sure if this is before or after this is right when she started to see 
the acupuncturist. She, by the way, side note, when I put up on Instagram that we would be doing a book review of this book, Mm -hmm. my acupuncturist texted me and was like, the acupuncturist that she goes to was my old boss. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh my yeah. God. But it was your was acupuncturist like, boss, prior boss, is who this, who Peggy Ornstein went to. Wow. Yes. Yeah. You, another Bay Area connection. That's so crazy. Another Bay Area connection. And my acupuncturist was like, oh man, it was so, she felt like so liberated reading reading about her in this book. Yeah. Because she said that she was super hardcore. Oh, that's so funny. Like super, super hardcore. Um, and this isn't specifically about the acupuncturist, but it kind of is a great representation of the industry of infertility, you know? Um, she says like, and how different was it really than the walls of baby names in the fertility clinics, the burbling infants on their websites, the souvenir s- snapshots of the cells or three ring binders overflowing with birth announcements and holiday cheer, Everyone used their successes to woo our aching hearts. Everyone coerced and equivocally, the doctors, the acupuncturists, the yoga for fertility instructors, they all dangled something just shy of a promise in front of us, then yanked it out of reach. Isn't that the truth? (laughs) Isn't that the truth? I was like, because sometimes I feel like, I don't know if you ever felt this way, but when I was planning my wedding, it was like, oh my God, like, this is insane. This is all a racket. Like, I'm just buying candles, but because I'm telling you that they're for a wedding, you're like adding a 30%, you know, increase. Exactly. Onto this. Here's, you want flowers? Here's flowers. Oh wait, they're for a wedding? Oh, actually this is the price. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. It's so true. Um, wait, but speaking, you know, we talked about what the inside of the waiting rooms look like and then how this is how, yes, you go into any IVF, you know, doctor's office and they've got all the pictures of the babies and the babies, the names and the happy families and all the websites, all that stuff. So I remember the very first fertility clinic that I went to, they actually gave us, uh, everything was like egg shaped, right? So they had like in their offices, there was like huge fo- like pictures, like beautiful framed photos of like eggs you know, like chicken eggs, whatever, eggs everywhere. And they actually gave us, talk about pressure. They gave us an egg timer. It was an egg and it was literally an egg timer because their whole point to to get across was the fact that like the clock is ticking. Like here's your little egg timer. Oh my gosh. Can you believe that? (laughs) Wow. Uh, Yeah. I think I would have preferred a pen. Well, it was, you know, right. Sure, I mean, sure like, you, I would too, use the pen more often than the egg timer, but a, a literal egg timer. And I was, at the, you know, <laughs> at the time I was like, Oh, how funny. Like, this is cute. Not going through it. I'm like, oh, I this is what happens when doctors try to be market market researchers and like market their business. Yes, exactly. <laughs> oh my gosh. I, um, so we're kind of moving into the, phase where she actually considers the idea of doing a donor egg Mm -hmm. with somebody who she um, sort of mentored 
I'd say. Um, Sort of a fan of hers that, you know, she remained in contact with and um, she sort of had a mentor-mentee relationship with. And um, I think they met or they didn't meet in person, but I think they had they've been communicating since this girl was she was 16. And then when the point that the donor eggs come around, she turns 21. Right, right. And um, I just this doesn't really talk about her infertility struggles, but it talks about her relationship to Jess. And it says it's um this is when Jess's mother wrote to Peggy mm-hmm. and she said, thank you for writing to Jess. She said, it means a lot to her and to me. It's good to know she has another trustworthy adult to talk to. And like, I think about that and like when, I don't know why it hits home, but like when I have a kid, I hope that like there are other trustworthy adults in their lives that they could talk to if they don't feel comfortable talking to their mom. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Cause I had, I had a lot of those in my life right. growing up and they were so important. Like I didn't want to come to my mom and talk about like this stuff yeah. to my mom. <laughs> you know, I wanted to talk to like an older sister like person. Right. Right. Are you, an, are you an only child? Don't you have a brother, right? I have an older brother. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Do you have an older sister? No. So I'm the oldest, but I have, I have, my parents divorced when I was two and remarried uh, twice after that. So I have three brothers and three sisters actually. Got it. Yes. Got it. Um, anything that stuck out to you in that section? So, yeah, I mean, that was just really tough to read. I mean, I thought it was, you know, amazing. I, that they had that relationship and beautiful that, that, you know, that just that Jessica was willing to give her, you know, her eggs and do that, you know, donate her eggs and and go through that whole process. Um, I think that to me, I mean, if I were Peggy going through this, when they talk about how Jess finally arrives and it's, you know, getting close to the egg retrieval and it's the night before they get to the doctor and she's still doing her, Jess is still doing her injections for the egg retrieval and she, Peggy's watching her and sees her over diluting the medication and is like, what? Like, wait, no, that's not how you do it. And just that whole thing about how, you know, Jess wanted to do this for her and was doing the best she can. And then to come, like, I just feel like, I don't even know how I would be. I don't know how I would feel if I was in that situation, going through this process and getting someone to do the donor eggs, paying for all this medication. And then to find out that poor Jess was doing it wrong the entire time. And, oh, just reading that that moment. Yeah. That moment, like my heart, like just moved to my throat. Yes. I was like, oh my God, like Peggy, Peggy's still like reaching out for control and like, you don't want to be too micromanaging about this thing, but but like, like, oh my God, it matters. (laughs) Yeah. So I, I totally agree. Totally agree. Uh, Yeah. That just, that one hurt. I was like, oh my gosh, I felt so bad. Um, Oh my gosh. And then after that, not only that, talk about a cluster. Um, after that, then when they get the eggs, thankfully she was, you know, it worked out. They were still able to pull the eggs, but then to find out that after, like, this is the whole thing about doctors with all this stuff. It's, It's just so crazy. It's like, you have to know, you have to do so much research as the patient going through this and almost be 
like 10 steps ahead of the doctors, which is so hard to do because we obviously didn't go to school for this. We are not (laughs) IVF doctors. But the fact that the husband gives his sample that day after the egg retrieval, and then the guy in the lab is like, oh, are we supposed to do the ICSI? Which is where they actually take the sperm and they implant it into the egg. Because the other, if you don't do that, what they do is they just you know, put the sperm and the egg in a Petri dish and hope that the sperm like makes its way into that. But that doesn't always happen. And in this case, that is exactly, you know, that, that, that didn't happen. So she says in here, she says, instead of homing in on Jess's eggs, Stephen's sperm had just lain there in the Petri dish doing a backstroke because the lab didn't know, the doctor didn't tell them to do ICSI. And so they just didn't do it. And I'm like, that was such a heartbreak when you go through all of this and to have something like that happen. It, like, oh my God. I, again, I, I was enraged yes. at that point. Yes. I was like, this is why it's so important to figure out. Well, yeah, like you said, one, do your research so that they know they got to get up early, you know to get anything past you. Right. You know what I mean? <laughs> like I want doctors to understand that like listen, I'm not coming in here blind. I've done my research. I've read my books. I I I've asked questions to other people before I'm even coming in here. So right. you know, don't don't try to get something past me. Right. You know? Um but also that like it's really important to choose your clinic wisely. Right. And it seemed like this guy was basically going you know, they had one doctor to do sort of like the initial consultation with, but then they just kind of got passed around to many different nurse practitioners and nurses and other doctors that they never even met. So there was like a lot of, you know, things that got lost in communication, Right. you know, and just another like shout out to Dr. Amy who does listen to this podcast. I, th- I think she does. I don't know. <laughs> Hi, Dr. I don't want to say for sure, but she might. Um, but she, she's the only doctor there. And she, you know, she, when I call the office, I talk to her. When I email her, I email her. Yeah. You know, I'm, I'm not going through this chain of command. Right. And I don't even know how she does it. Honestly, the other day I sent her an email and like, actually it's been a couple times last week and like within like 20 minutes and a half an hour, she's responding. I think I told you that. And you're like, I was just in her office. Like she must've, you must've walked out and she responded back to me instantly. And on Friday she called me at seven o'clock at night. Like (laughs) she is working like crazy, but yes, it's, it's amazing when you have that experience. Cause like I said, I'm going on my fourth clinic now and this, it's such a difference to have that one-on-one same doctor every time you're not passed around to a bunch of different people. And it's so important to have that connection because you actually feel safe, you know, and secure. I feel like what, what I'm doing now, um, I, I feel like I'm in the right hands because she knows every single thing that's happening as opposed to getting totally. bounced from doctor to doctor who doesn't even know. <laughs> right. And they're all just like passing information and like the person who's maybe performing a test like the HSG, for example, on me was not my actual doctor, but my doctor was the one reviewing the results, Right. but he wasn't the one that performed the procedure. So it's just like, oh man, you simply, you know, by simplifying and having one person do everything, Mm -hmm. it's like, it's, you just like, yeah. Yeah. It just gives you that added level of comfort. Yep. I also like just quick side note on page 170, they talk about um, 
going to North Beach and having like focaccia sandwiches and tumblers of raw red wine at Mario's Cigar Store. Mm -hmm. Like quick sidebar, I used to work in North Beach and I'd go to Mario's Cigar Store (laughs) all the time. I love that. It's such a great place. Well, don't you feel Um, I I felt like um, reading this, it was so funny because she like like you said just hearing about like references of like uh san francisco and oakland and berkeley and they talk about tahoe or whatever like everything i'm like this is like i know where you guys are like <laughs> totally totally um yeah and you know like she then goes on and on about jess um her relationship with jess and um you know, unfortunately, that round of donor egg retrieval with Jess was unsuccessful. Right. And um, because of the clinical error. And um, with the whole Jess, petri dish and the sperm thing, because they didn't right. do that ICSI thing. Yep. Jess seems like, I don't know, she seems like, you know, like, when Peggy called her to explain this, Jess wasn't mad that she did it. She didn't feel any disappointment or remorse, you know? Like, she was a very mature 21-year-old. Oh, absolutely. I agree. So, um, yeah. It's, um, I also have, um, she sort of goes into um, the idea, or or just like the Jewish history of, um, uh like what it mean like what it means to be a mom and what it means to have a baby and she says something like it would mean for example that a baby born to a jewish survivor of uterine cancer who'd used to used a gentile surrogate to gestate an embryo created for her own eggs and her husband's sperm would have to be converted. Secular law uses intentionality as a measure. The person or people who initiated the creation of a baby are the parents, period. As as relieved as I was to put that que- to put the question aside, that approach seemed more hu- more humane. Yeah. Which I liked that. I did too. I really like that because I feel like that's so true. You know, everyone goes through their journey different ways, but no matter, you know, what the end result is and how you got there, like you are ultimately the parents because you are the ones who started it and created this baby. Right. It was your intention to have Mm -hmm. this baby. So however way you get there, exactly. you know, anything else that stuck out to you in these final, final pages? Um, So that was the donor eggs part. Do we want to skip to... I mean, would you want to, should we go to the adoption piece? Yeah, let's go to the adoption piece, which is kind of where everything sort of collides. Yes. I guess. Um, She, she, I really appreciated the way she described the adoption process in San Francisco. Mm -hmm. And, you know, people so glibly make that suggestion and recommendation to people. Yeah, like it's so easy. And it's so not. Right. Absolutely not. It's so hard. Um, and her describing, I think her name was Bernice, Mm -hmm. the woman who could essentially like, I don't, I don't, 
know if the this is the proper term. <laughs> yeah, the gatekeeper to all international adoptions. Right. And how how much of a, you know, biatch she was. Basically, yeah. Yeah, she was the gatekeeper and at that time, I don't recall why. Why was that happening? But it says there was a problem in that Japanese babies bound for San Francisco weren't being allowed in the country. If It was only San Francisco, though. If they were going like to, to Sacramento or San Jose or anywhere else, it was fine. But for San Francisco, Bernice was the one who was like, X-Nane, all babies coming from Japan. It's just so weird. I'm like, who and is how, this Bernice how woman? Un- <laughs> yeah, I know. Like, she needs to be replaced. I hope for sure. she is. This book was 10 years ago. I hope she's gone. <laughs> I know. I know. But they, so they finally get, um, they, you know, go through the process of trying to adopt a little boy named Kai mm-hmm. from Japan. And it's looking for a home and, you know, well, they... that, that was interesting too, though, because remember they get the call from this woman who she met when she was in Japan, who is, I guess you would say the gatekeeper of the ba- of, of this adoption, you know, process, not in all of Japan, but in the, the, I don't know, the orphanage that she was at. Um, and so they get the call and says, they say, oh, this, there's a baby born, a boy that has been born. If you want, you know, do you guys want him? And then also they had to come up with the name and, you know, she knew what she was going to name him, but she is the one who named him Kai. Yep. Yep. And when the adoption fell through, um, because of all the rigmarole Mm -hmm. with, you know, paperwork, um, the adoptive parents came out of San Diego and they kept the name Kai. Which is beautiful. I love that. So beautiful. And so what a page turner as she's, you know, getting the news that, um, they're going to be able to adopt Kai, she finds out she's pregnant. Right. And then they start to panic. I like that what she's talking about. Uh, two babies, one baby, like no baby. Like now all of a sudden, you know, it was no babies. Now yeah. it's two, one, now two. And, you know, I just can't imagine how, how that would feel. I know that they kind of, they had a conversation and, you know, she's, she says, you know, I feel so invested in Kai now. I don't think I can, but I don't think I can handle one, one more than one baby because our house is so small. And he says that her husband says, well, do you want to abort? And she's like, of course not. I couldn't. And, right. um, and then he says, do you want to give up Kai, you know? And, and then she risks getting, ending up with nothing, you know, but ultimately they had to think about the fact that, you know, Kai was already a living child. He was a baby and he needed a place to go. And that was a decision that they had to, well, not only that, they didn't really get to make the decision because of everything that happened in San Francisco, but it's just interesting the way that all kind of happened. Yeah. And how old was she at this point? 42 or 43? I think she was 42. 42. Yeah. Yeah. And so that was another thing. She was like, what if this baby doesn't go to full term? And we gave up Kai. You know, it was just like, oh, man, it's so, yeah, like the way she was weighing up that decision. Um, and then ultimately, the decision was made for her. Right. You know, and she she ended up with um, Kai got placed with a different family and she gave birth to Daisy, which yeah. is the whole 
title of the book, Waiting for Daisy. And, and you know, um, the craziest part of all that too was that after all the fertility treatments and everything that she had done, she ended up getting pregnant naturally and yeah. uh, gave birth full term to her baby Daisy. That's the that's the tr- goddamn trip, isn't it? it that like, is. It really oh is. Oh, my God. That's a real <laughs> kick in the dick. Um, <laughs> after all of that. Oh, my God. After all of that, you know. But um, I, I thought I really liked the way she sort of tied everything together towards the end of the book. And she says on page 223, uh, becoming a parent can't give me back the time the entire second half of my 30s, obliterated by obsession. It doesn't compensate for the inattention to my career, for my self-inflicted torment, for trashing my marriage. Although my relationship with Stephen has, thankfully, proven resilient, hairline cracks remain. We may never reclaim the ease of our early years together. All we can do is move forward, tenderly, kindly, with mutual forgiveness. And with the and with the knowledge that our love for each other has never, ever flagged. It was so beautiful. Uh, yeah, I love that. I, it, it really was. I mean, uh, these last couple of pages are just gorgeous. They are. And I just love that, like you said, I mean, how she tied it all together and how, again, it just kind of, when you go through this stuff, it's so intense and you feel so many different emotions. And I love that how she says at the end, you know, they, it doesn't erase everything that they went through. Um, but that, you know, it's almost like they're stronger for it at this point, you know, they, they made it through and they're stronger. Yeah. She says on the last page, she says, can I help who's next? But my pettiness is dwarfed by a sense of reverent, radiant gratitude that's sweeter for having experienced its opposite, as love is sweeter for one's scars. Mine is the luck of realizing that happiness may only be the respite between bounds of pain, and so is to be savored, not taken as an entitlement. I suppose I've finally understood the concept of wabi-sabi, and although in many lessons I've given a lot not to have learned it. I'm grateful for the lesson. Yes. So good. So good. I am so, so glad that I finally read this book. Oh, me too. Well, I'm glad that like, you know, we were able to connect on it and, you know, I mean, there was just so many levels of connectivity to it. You know, the Bay Area references, our own struggles. Japan for you. I mean, yeah, there was so, so much so much. Well, Steph, thank you so much for joining the podcast today. Of course. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so glad that I got to do this and and review this with you. Maybe we'll read another book. Maybe we'll start an infertility book club. That sounds amazing. I would love that. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Toodaloo. All right. Bye. Bye. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Me, Myself, and Millie. Follow us on Instagram at Me, Myself, Millie for more podcast updates. If you enjoyed the show, please like and subscribe and share on social media. A special thanks to my husband, Rowan Brooks, for technical support and Cal Reichenbach, who did all the music you heard in this episode. You can check him out at calzonemusic.com. Thanks, cutie bums, and see you next week.